1958, astrophysicist Gene Parker mathematically described what we call today the solar wind, which is a continuous flow of charged particles from our sun that accelerates to supersonic speeds and permeates our solar system. Back in 1958, though, Parker says everyone thought he was just plain wrong. This one came back with a comment that before you waste your time writing the papers like this, you ought to go to the library and read up on the subject. On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, an interview with Gene Parker, after whom NASA named the Parker Solar Probe, which launched earlier this year to study the sun and solar wind, and will get seven times closer to the sun than any previous spacecraft has done. I'm Robert Frederick. Here's our interview. Uh, well, my name is Eugene Parker, a retired professor of physics. Been looking forward to this launch for some years now, uh, and uh, it finally pulled off, and it's a great subject to talk about. Before you wrote your paper that first described solar winds, did scientists think there was anything in interplanetary space? Yeah, uh, but it was vague. First of all, there's a bit of dust there, and that's because of the zodiacal light. Uh, there's a faint glow in the sky, very faint, uh, around the, the equatorial plane of the sun. We, we see it easily enough in telescopes, and astronomers trying to take pictures of very faint objects find it a, the bane of their life because it's the, and things are dim enough without having a very faint glow superimposed on them. And the other thing is that the Earth's magnetic field, which is exposed out in space, of course, jiggles every once in a while when the sun has been active. So clearly something from the sun, particles of some kind, uh, are out in space, or at least part of the time. So it was well known that there was something going on. Uh, I think what bothered people was that it had a simple explanation in terms of expansion of the corona of the sun. It's one of those things where once you see it, it, it's very simple. And of course, up to the time it's very simple, it's a great mystery. So it sounds like it was an attractive problem. I understand jobs were scarce back then. Why were there so few jobs for physicists back in the 1950s? I don't really know the answer. There had been a big burst of spending on physics during the war, and this was probably the usual political reaction. You know, well, you guys had your chance. Now we're going to do something else. But the way it turned out, the meager research that was done turned up a variety of very interesting phenomena about which we'd had no knowledge previously. So the subject with the development of the space age moved forward. Uh, you, could send, you could really send a spacecraft out there and detect and measure what it was you were talking about. Although it wasn't until 1962 that, uh, that the solar wind was uh, directly observed. That was data uh, from Mariner 2, is that right? That's, that was the final thing. There have been detections before, but always you, exceptions were made. and uh, Things were ambiguous. But in 62, the, the Venus Mariner spacecraft 
went off to Venus and got six months of clean, uninterfered measurements, and it showed the wind there every every day, 24-7, excuse me. To that initial paper uh, described the solar wind, I understand it was very poorly received at the time. Yeah, you might say that. The, the custom is to send a new manuscript to a referee to comment on it, and which can be very useful. But uh, this one came back with a comment that before you waste your time writing papers like this, you ought to go to the library and read up on the subject. Uh, in short, I was supposed to stay by the conventional views, which didn't really tell you anything. What gave you the confidence that you were right? When I finished the solution to the mathematical equation, which says there is no solution but the supersonic solar wind. But it, but it wasn't until the data came in that uh, the scientific community accepted it? That's right, yeah. I was told that I must have made a mathematical error. And I would reply, the mathematics is four lines long. Check it and show me the error. And... Uh, of course, that doesn't settle anything just because you can't find an error. There must be something wrong because you came to a ridiculous conclusion, kind of. Uh, I, I, make, I quote that because the Russian, the, the first detection was made by a Russian spacecraft. That was Luna 1, I think. I uh, don't remember what spacecraft it went on, uh, but Gringos was the, was the first one to detect the solar wind. But it must be wrong because everybody knew it wasn't like that. Uh, you can't get anywhere with that argument. So with just four lines, uh, it doesn't sound like there was any need to refine the initial mathematical description of solar wind. Or was there when the data started coming in? Oh, no. The, the first, first calculation was based on a simple model just to prove the principle. Uh, I assume uniform temperature. Okay, the temperature actually varies so what? The uniform temperature, the mathematics is elementary, and it shows there's only one solution. That was the thing that people just couldn't, somehow couldn't stomach it. Uh, well, I guess that describes the situation. Uh, many people were very kind. I had a number of people say, well, you know, it's too bad it was a great idea, but it's just wrong. <laughs> uh, it's peculiar, the reaction you get. To the broader field of astrophysics and over your long career, have you yourself experienced any surprises? Surprises like your solar wind paper caused others to be surprised? Well, let's see. Oh, uh, I know a couple of anecdotal examples which are worth a good laugh. I uh, once wrote some papers on the dynamical effects of cosmic rays. You should think, not, think of cosmic rays not as particles, but as a continuum again. And uh, the, the dynamical equations are easily written down and solved and for various circumstances. And uh, it turns out the galactic magnetic field is inflated by cosmic rays. And uh, it, it's unstable because of the pressure of cosmic rays. And so it's very interesting and, very, and quite simple. I wrote it up. It's a, it's a cute phenomenon. I sent it into the Astrophysical Journal. And 
Chandrasekhar, the editor, sent me a, uh, a copy of the referee's report. And the thing that tickles me most is that the report began, well, I had always thought that Parker was competent, but, and then followed a long harangue without a single substantive objection to it. And uh, when I showed that to the editor, he said, okay, I publish it. If a hostile referee can't come up with more, more forceful objection than that. So it's a, a very common phenomenon. And if you're just a young guy starting out unknown, it's, it sometimes can ruin your career because people don't know anything about you except this paper, which might be excellent, but it's referred to by an eminent expert as being wrong, and so you're, you're wrong and uh, you're dead. Uh, I've had that happen to me. It didn't really matter because the paper was right and rather trivial. So after this solar wind paper, it sounds like you started in on other problems. Oh, yeah. Well, the universe is full of problems, and uh, we're all mortals, so you better get to work on it. It's gonna, you're not going to last forever. True enough, true enough. As to the study of the sun, particularly, have you been involved in any previously planned space missions? Only peripherally. I mean, I have offered general comments on what it would be nice to do, what would we like to measure. Uh, but the, the, the design and building of a spacecraft to, say, the, the check the solar wind it is entirely up to the technical staff who never seem to get any credit. What do you think kept prior probes from attempting to do what the Parker solar probe is going to do in getting so close to the sun? Was it uh, technology tech- or expense or something else? Both. Uh, it started out when people thought it would be nice to get into the atmosphere of the sun and see what the conditions are there, what oscillations, what waves, or what disturbances. And uh, in a very general way, you realize that you could probably discover a lot of new effects if you could just get near the sun without melting down your spacecraft. And somebody at JPL uh, took this challenge seriously, and they designed a spacecraft that would survive a swing past the sun, reaching the closest approach of four solar radii. Uh, That's pretty fantastic. and anything exposed at that temperature is a bright red hot. I guess I'd say white hot. But with a clever spacecraft design, a conical shape with the apex pointed toward the sun, they got they designed a spacecraft which should stand a swoop past the sun, coming by at four solar radii. It never got off the ground because first, it was expensive. Nobody denied that. Second, and pretty serious, was the objection that what can you learn in four hours? Uh, You might see something interesting, but you can't go back and take a look at it. And it was realized finally that the best science would be done by compromising. Let's go to 10 solar radii as the spacecraft sweeps around the sun, rather than shooting from the extreme case of four solar radii. You're sacrificing everything then for the survival of the spacecraft. 
So at 10 solar radii, the science opens up. It takes days to go by instead of hours. And uh, you, you can, you don't have to sacrifice everything. In going by at four solar radii, you cannot expose any instrument to sunlight. Uh, and uh, you find you're, you're strapped. So uh, that's what the present solar probe is all about. And uh, while the, the, the heat is overcome by a, the heat shield, uh, it's a big piece of very specially constructed carbon. The, the, the analogy the engineers give you is, imagine something made of charcoal, uh, except it isn't, it's a very much more sophisticated and effective. Well, that's, uh, that's where one stands at the present time, and now we're waiting to see what nature has to show us. I saw that you got to visit the lab where NASA was building the Parker Solar Probe. Uh, how did that visit go? Did you ask the scientists and engineers a lot of questions? Oh, I asked them a few questions. Remember, I'm fairly ignorant of it too, but they patiently answered my questions. Uh, one question that occurs to you for a brief moment is if this heat shield that blocks off the sunlight gives you a cool shadow in which to do your science, uh, why isn't the carbon destructed and destroyed by fire? And of course, you realize in space there's no oxygen, so things don't burn, uh, which is a different world from the one we move in. It, it's a very ingenious device, and I still don't understand how over four, about four inches, the, you can go from red hot sunlight to essentially room temperature where you build your instruments. Uh, it, it's just uh, mind boggling. How did you learn that NASA would name the Parker Solar Probe after you? How did you hear about that? Well, one day when I was, I'm retired, but I was sitting and working on something or other of no significance, and the phone rang. It was uh, Tom Cherbuchan, whom I knew slightly, and he said that NASA is proposing to put my name on the spacecraft, but we want to be sure that's okay with you. So I didn't have to think too long and hard when I said, yeah, I guess that's a fine idea. And he said, thank you, and hung up, and the rest is history. In your heart of hearts, do you most hope that the Parker Space Probe helps solve some of those mysteries about the sun, things that you've wondered about for decades, or completely turns everything on its head and raises new questions with data that we can't explain at all? Well, there's always the possibility. One can never deny that he may stumble across something that is completely contrary to what he knew. But what's known is already based on general dynamical principles. So I suspect there may well be some surprises, but it isn't going to be some previously unthought of possibility. And I think those are, I think those are pretty well covered by the available theoretical possibilities. Uh, and if this if the spacecraft wants to prove me wrong, I'm delighted. Fair enough. Well, Gene Parker, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, nice to talk to you, Robert. That was astrophysicist Gene Parker, who first mathematically described the solar wind and after whom NASA named the Parker Solar Probe. 
that's on its way to explore the sun and solar wind. It's the first time NASA has named a mission after a living person. You can see pictures of both Parkers, the person and the spacecraft, and read an excerpt of this interview in the November-December 2018 issue of American Scientist and online at americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. I'm Robert Frederick. Thank you for joining us.